listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. I'm super excited to have Adam Zelani on with us. Um, Adam has been a longtime fan of mine. I actually just saw a fantastic talk by him at uh, uh, PGC last week. Um, amazing talk. Um, the stuff that you've been doing with live ops for a long time has been uh, super exciting to watch and, and to learn from you. So uh, hopefully we can continue the the trends of, of sharing knowledge with folks today. But Adam, I, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, what is your story? How did you get into gaming? How did you uh, end up at Zepto Labs? Hey, well, uh, hey, Tom, and hey, everybody. First of all, so great to be here. You know, it's so surreal to be a listener and suddenly I find myself here talking to you. So great to be here. Um, okay, so well, how did I end up in gaming? Well, that is a great question because, I mean, depends how deep you want to go, right? But I mean, I suppose like in most people in this industry, gaming has been a part of uh, all my life. And it's actually funny that you ask that, that, that this because... Um, actually, my education and previous practice was in law. So I have actually two degrees in law. My master's was in international law. And, you know, there came a time in my life when I had to move abroad and I had to look for new opportunities. And that was, you know, my uh, ex-girlfriend back then said, like, you know, you, you could try looking for something that you, you like and it was like, okay, so what do I like doing? And there was just two things that I knew I was always passionate about. Uh, that was either music or games. So, yeah, I applied to some game companies, and uh, it, that was. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I, I got a gig as a game economy designer back in 2015 or 16, I think. And I've been hooked ever since. I mean, it's a great industry, and I'm super passionate about mobile games nowadays. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we were actually just uh, bemoaning before we started about how uh, uh, we both have uh, lots of snow and, and ice outside. Um, and I, I also have a passion for music and games and, and shows gaming. So I, I wonder if it's something to be said, you know, staying inside during the winter and playing a bunch of video games leads to a, a fruitful <laughs> career. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think... This is let me like this is not how it is right now. Like we are all work, hardworking, and you know it's um, quite rare that I I don't know about you, but I, it's quite rare for me to find some time to where I can just disconnect and play some games. Yeah, but definitely um, this is definitely what led to to you know this because um, it's funny. You know I, I always wonder about this. I don't know about you, but in my case, like I never considered games to be like a like a valid industry for me. I was never like when I was a kid, I loved playing games, right? And but I never considered it like a career, and I was never into coding or anything like that. That's why I went to for you know for the big career, right? I wanted my law degree, and I wanted to be a serious lawyer. Um, and then it turned out completely different. Like um, uh, I. And it's the reason why I love uh, this industry so much, because there's so much science and business, but also creativity involved. So um, definitely, you know, when you're when you're when you're younger and you're passionate about games, uh, I was wrong. I got to admit I was wrong. And this is a super valid industry. And it's definitely it's definitely not about playing games all day and just being this creative guy. There is a lot of very, very businessy and sciencey stuff involved but it's not only that but it's also a part of it yeah it's amazing how much goes into uh making a game probably one of the most complicated products and and systems and, and industries out there um so i will admit i have heard some very interesting stories of people getting into game development and uh, you know how they got here but I think you're the first lawyer that I've ever talked to. Talk to. Um, so, you know, you know, tell me a little bit about law. Like, has has your law degree or the way that you approach things or think about things actually impacted, you know, your career within games? Um. Yes, but I think, and honestly, this is something I think about a lot. Okay, and let me just start with kind of a mantra of mine, and maybe you'll disagree. So. If you disagree, actually, this will be a fun discussion to have. But I think 
you know, to make games, it, you can't make games only by science. You need life experience, just like in any form of art, you know? Um, the people that I'm most inspired by are actually people who have something to say, you know? So the guy be behind Dark Souls, Hidetaka Miyazaki, like if you read his life story, he struggled with English and he liked to read fantasy books. So back in his days, he would kind of try to read, uh, but what he didn't understand, he kind of had to bridge with his own fantasy. And then he put this into the Dark Souls games. I don't know if you played them, but you're basically collecting the shards of information scattered across the game. And you kind of have to bridge these gaps between, uh, like, and connect the dots by yourself. And he, you know, I like to always refer to the story. And this is how I feel about games. So any life experience will probably spill over to, uh, to the games industry. And it's also been, been true about law. And I don't know if you're asking about, um, like let, let's say the skills you learn as a lawyer, you know, it's, it definitely helped because there is like, you know, you learned how to argument, how to read, how to read between the lines and psychology is a massive part of it. But I think anything you, you do, uh, anything you do will probably spill over to the way you approach games. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely sure there's different aspects on, on how you approach them and how you think about them. And, you know, even, and I remember seeing this uh, triangle of, of games where you've got like hyper casual with like really low budget, really fast things on one side. And then you've got like blizzard over on the other side with like really long timelines and really big budgets and things like that. Um, and you see different companies like fall, you know, at different points within there. And obviously you can't have, you know, totally like big budgets and then like really quick timelines and stuff too at the same time. Um, but it, it got me just thinking about the idea of, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of people in the industry, uh, are very creative and they don't really want to work on a derivative of a game. Um, mm -hmm. But I also feel like a derivative requires a lot less capital, requires less risk, and allows you to focus more on execution, you know, doing things like market research distribution and live ops. Um, but I, I also feel like at somewhere in that derivative, like it can't be a complete copy of a game. Otherwise, like why would I play clash of clans as a complete copy? Like, why would I start over? You know, yep. um, it's, it's got to significantly improve the experience such that I'm willing to give up the time and the money and the energy I've already invested in clash of clans to play this new derivative of the game. Yeah. Uh, yep. But uh, I guess, you know, where do you fall in that? Like, are, are you more towards the, start something completely fresh or are you more on the, uh, you know, take a derivative and uh, improve upon it sort of a thing? Um, I don't think there is a right answer to this. I think it's more to uh, in the lines of the values of your company, right? Or what you want to convey and release to the world. But I think both can be valid. Ultimately, it's what you want to achieve. And I think it's totally valid if you want to, you know, spend time. I mean, let's, from my experience, you know, making new games and, you know, making a new game, something that necessarily hasn't been done in that form before, that is really tough. Like, that's going to probably take a lot of time, probably cost a lot of money. <laughs> but, you know, but then there is the other side, like, then there's probably pr a pretty big potential in it, right? Um. But it's just like with any other product. Like we have, when we ask these kind of questions, we have to put our product manager, product owner hat on and say, okay, like, what? How do we want to, you know, what kind of product do we want to really release to the world? And but on the other hand, I think it's totally valid to say, like, okay, well, we know that something that has been released works. We can take the core and kind of build up on that, you know, maybe move it in, in a different direction. So in this case, it would probably be easy, you know, it will probably be easier to take the core, you know, you know, uh, reference their balancing, reference their UI, whatnot, uh, stuff that you don't have, you want to think too much about and just think a little bit about uh, um, how do I want to build on top of this existing product that already exists somewhere. But then you're entering already a very competitive market because probably you're not the only one thinking in these lines. Like how many Clash Royale copies have you seen, Dom? You know what I mean? 
and how many have been, have been as successful uh, as Clash Royale? You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's why I say you need to kind of align your values and your goals and be very clear on what you want to achieve. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, maybe Tennis Clash and Golf Clash are the two that I know that have actually had some success, but I feel like it's a very different audience that they're targeting. Yeah. Um, thinking about that approach, which I actually really like, do you follow a similar approach within a game itself, like for live ops? Because uh, something that I've heard a lot, and I don't know if you've experienced this, um, but uh, you know, you release a new event for a game and it might do really well with like engagement. Uh, but if you keep reusing that event, even if you're just kind of reskinning it or whatnot, after a certain number of, uh, months, the engagement and revenue seems to go down from that event. Um, uh, so I don't know if you've experienced that, but like, what, what is your approach to designing like new events or like working within a game itself and, you know, creating derivatives of things that have been successful. Um, because I think that's one of the biggest challenges live ops people face today is like, how do I continually come up with fresh experiences that are fun for my players? Um, but also, you know, get better, drive better engagement, better revenue, et cetera. Well, I think it's uh, the, the same principle as what we talked about just a minute ago. It, uh, I think both can be valid. Um, and it's always a question of, of time, right? How much time do I have into developing this new product feature, right? And with time is also linked, uh, money. Um, you know, one thing that I always like to, you know, remind myself is that, especially in live ops, and, you know, you know there's always a little bit of anxiety linked with new features. You can never be sure something will work. If there was like a template or steps, how to bring any feature or even product live with, with a certain degree of success, we would all be doing it, right? And, and this is partly what we were talking about at the start, that you can never know, right? You can never know. There is always a little bit of anxiety linked, and that's good. So ultimately, you're going to have to make a choice on uh, uh, which which path you want to take. Um, and yeah, best of luck to you. Uh, you know, <laughs> you're you're, enter you're entering a very gray zone. And like I say, you can follow best practices into developing something, but that will not yield results. On the other hand, if you want to do something cool, new and original, you're going to have to be very bold, you know? Would you have any recommendations around, like, does some of it, you know, relate to audience size, you know, e.g. if I have a million daily active users, maybe it's worth my spending maybe a month or two designing some new fresh event. Whereas if I only have, I don't know, 30 or 40,000 daily active users that investing all that time in something totally new and creative maybe isn't worth it. Yeah. Well, again, um, you want to, get as much information as possible, right? Before even starting any, any sort of development. And if possible, and this is not always the case with live operations, and, but if possible, you want to release an MVP version of it and basically uh, quantify, quantify the results, right? But of course, uh, if, you're talking, if you're talking about only about like small features, yeah, well, the risk I would say there is minimum and you're, you're gonna have to uh, embrace the unknown to a certain degree. Uh, if you're de developing something only for an audience of 30, 40,000 uh, people that, that, you know, in mobile game, in mobile gaming, that is very, that, that is not a lot. Yep. So uh, I don't think you, you should go crazy or, or, or too much over that. Yeah. And if you succeed, you know, if you succeed and it helps you move the metrics for those 30, 40,000 people, good luck. You've done a, you probably did a good job there. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, um, I remember in your talk, um, at PGC, um, you showed a really interesting graph, um, which was, uh, 2019 where you had 
one type of live ops. And it, it seemed like you had a, a spike and then it would go, you know, maybe three or four weeks and then maybe you'd run the events again. It would kind of spike again. Uh, towards the end of the year, though, those spikes weren't, you know, quite as high. So maybe it worked for like eight months or so. And then in 2020, you mentioned you added a higher volume of ops. And, and it looks like there's, you know, spikes all throughout the year, like a much more stable, consistent, and you didn't really see that drop off towards the end of the year either. Um, you know, what are your recommendations around the types and the numbers of live ops? Like in 2020, did you guys start doing, like, was it just the same, like say three or four events that were on repeat or did you have different varieties in there? Like, you know, what could someone do if they wanted to translate their revenue from 2019 to more of a 2020 consistent yeah. Um, all right. So at, at PGC, um, I, I, uh, this graph that you're talking about, I was referencing that in 2019, we only had, let's say, in CATS, the project where I'm right now, um, we only had one type of event. And we found out that we can only target, target a certain demographic with this type of event. And so the obvious next steps were that, okay, but we don't want to just target, you know, one type of our player segment, we want to target everybody. So we started developing new features with this in mind. And true enough, we found out that with this, we can uh, launch operations with a high cadency, right? We can uh, launch a higher volume of operations and each one is is kind of targeted at a different, different player segment. So to answer your question, as you well know, and I think you speak a, a lot about this in your podcasts, with each type of operations that you're launching, depending on the balancing and the type of operations it is, but you're going to be inevitably burning your players out, right? And let's say you only have one type of operations. If you launch it every Thursday for uh, and it lasts until Monday, they'll firstly probably get kind of bored of it, right? Because mm-hmm. they're seeing the same thing over and over again. And secondly they'll probably start burning out because this is the psychological effect of operations, right? I mean, again, it goes back to the details, but in general, any type of operations is going to, your players are going to feel like they need to engage, right? A good type of operations, we say, is that it has to die for uh, rewards, right? And they feel they're achievable. Now, whether... It's achievable by, you know, spending all your free time and not going to bed or whatnot. Um, it's going to start burning them out. And this has happened. Um, this has happened a couple of times where we had, you know, when you have some kind of a good seasonality where you can, uh, mm-hmm. where you should launch a lot of operations, like at the end of the month, we'll be getting a lot of tickets like, guys, I just can't handle this anymore. Like, please give it, give us one week, you know, like the community team would be conveying this type of that type of information. So mm-hmm. What we started doing is we made like a roadmap and when we start this kind of uh, live operations planning, this is something to take into account. Like who are we targeting, you know, and, and we are always trying to make sure that uh, each type of of, uh, player segment does not start burning out. Right. So each type of operations should target different types of players. And also we try to, let's say, combine major operations, which is the ones that have everything to die for. And then we try to follow up with, let's say, minor operations, like nice to participate, but not mandatory, you know? So how did you um, go about, like, let's say I have my game. And yeah, I I can derive different player segments within my game, but like, what is the right way to figure out, like, which segments aren't engaging with my events and why? And, you know, what sort of event could I design for a segment? Like what's, what's the right way to like break apart your players or to think about that so that I can, you know, have the right amount of events in there that my players do feel like there's fun things for them to do and they don't have to take part in those, you know, other events that they don't particularly like. Yeah. Well, ultimately I think it comes down to knowing what uh, your players want. Right. And this just comes down to data. And of course, if you can, uh, one of the best things you should do alongside your data is um, to have some kind of direct feedback from your, from your community. Right now, I always, I I mean, I never recommend designers or people involved in product or design to, unless necessary uh, to directly engage players uh, or, you know, engage in discord or whatnot. 
because once they start, they find out they're start, they might start, you know, leveraging you and God forbid threatening you. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, this is definitely where the community comes in super handy. And yeah, uh, basically uh, once you know what they want and the type of needs that your game uh, fulfills in these type of players, just starting, start designing around that. But I think there's also different layers that, you know, to think about when designing events, uh, it's not only like, okay, we have these competitive guys, these competitive whales who love to be, you know, killing and, you know, competing all week. And maybe we have also these casual guys who just want to participate in something that's out of the meta or, or out of the loop, right? But also there is like a different dimension where you want to talk about where in the onboarding phase are, are are these players at like you can have players who are just in the hook, hook phase right like who maybe have been in your game for less than seven days and your balancing should reflect that okay because all already players who have been who, who are in the game for less than seven days they also might be competitive but all you know maybe you want to put those competitive players with the killing you know the, the players have been in your game for for years and years right so, and then you may have players who have been in the game for, let's say, 30 days. So you can, at that point, you could you could say like, okay, these guys um, are, are probably in the habit phase. So they already kind of know they like the game, right? They probably know how the game works and they know they want to keep playing it because they've been there for so long. So again, your balancing should reflect that, right? They probably want a, a different type of challenge. They want to, you know, start feeling unique and more powerful than the, than the initial type, the, the players who are in the hook phase. So this is also something to take into account. Mm, that's really good. Um, so you mentioned uh, it's useful to be able to talk to the players at some level, you know, do surveys or some sort of segmented surveys, like are those ever useful to, for getting like actual information from players? I know a lot of teams use them. I personally don't, um, especially in Zeptolab, we have a, a very good community team and of course, um, who basically are in touch with, uh, let's say the most vocal players. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there's anything wrong, we'll, they'll convey us these messages, these tickets, and they're also pretty good at filtering them out because, uh, you know, box populi can be a very, very dangerous thing. Uh, and I also talked uh, at, uh, about this at the PGC, like, you know, your quantitative and your qualitative data should complement each other. And sometimes data is showing you one thing, but you may not be sure why it's there. Like, why, why am I seeing this spike? Or why are they not engaging with this, this event? And this is where your community team is going to come in. And they'll be like, yeah, but, you know, these guys, you know, their inventory has been full. Like, they don't need any more parts, you know? Mm. And to the contrary, your community team may be coming to you and say, guys, like, the players are super concerned about this one thing. And, you know, they don't think that, you know, the, the balancing is right. And then you'll check your data and say, no, we, we see engagement is just right. And, you know, all our metrics are fairly healthy. So it's probably, it might be an emotional reaction, right? These guys like to be fairly vocal. So I think these two, uh, you know, these, these type of data should complement each other. And yeah, uh, psychology is a big part of that. I think this is where, you know, being a player really helps, you know, being a lifetime player really helps to know the, the frustrations and joys of, of you know, uh, engaging with, with with a game that you like, and sometimes it's love hate relationships. <laughs> you know, that's actually a good question. You know, I, I assume you've probably run into some scenarios, and I've even seen this where uh, you look at your data for an event, and it looks, you know, revenue and engagement and everything is up, but all the players seem to be, you know, really angry about that event. Like, how do you? How do you merge those two concepts? Do you continue running the event because the data says, hey, you guys like this? Or do you try to address that? Or like, what's the, the best way for a team that is encountering something like that to uh, handle that? Because obviously something about the event is working, but you also want the players to feel like it's you know, good for them and they're being heard, right? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And here we, again, touch upon the topic of reactive ops, which is what I was talking at the PGC. And, you know, the short version of it is like, be reactive. Live ops is not set in stone. And, you, you know, it, it has happened that, uh, you know, we'll be re- I'll be reacting within 30 minutes of launching something based on the data. 
But in general, I do not recommend this type of reactions. Um, you, you said the scenario, like, would you, you know, change an event when it's running? Unless there is something fundamentally wrong, I would not. I would let it, let it run its course and then do like a post-mortem, you know, or retrospective and try to find out why, you know, like why was the result what it was and what was my initial idea? You know, did, did, I, did I succeed in, succeed in balancing it? Were the rewards, uh, you know, and the motivation not juicy enough? But you said something super key there. And this is like one of the biggest learnings that, that we've had. Um, you know, and you basically said this. Um, when you launch, you said like if you launch something and, you know, the, the, the players start getting vocal, right? This is actually, from my experience, a very good thing if they start getting vocal because it means they care, right? And you, 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 you're probably doing something right there. Now, imagine the, uh, the other scenario. Imagine you launch something and they, they, they don't react. They're like, you know, uh, talking about, you know, their day-to-day lives or trolling and sending memes, but they're not talking about your event. Mm-hmm. It probably means like they don't care enough and they don't even care enough to, you know, well, complain, right? <laughs> I mean, complaining is a big part of the, you know, from my experience, it's a big part of the free-to-play industry. And you have to Mm -hmm. kind of deal with that. And you have to be able to filter when, you know, the the complaining is like an emotional reaction and when it's like super valid. Mm -hmm. But in general, if you launch something and they, the community doesn't react, it's not a good sign. You you want something. (laughs) Of course, you want the the good, the good kind of reaction, but... If you get get no reaction, it's probably better than uh, any kind of reaction. Mm, that's really good. Okay, so looping back just a little bit because we we touched on something interesting, uh, which was you know in 2019 you had okay performance, and then towards the end players kind of got burnt out a little bit because you had an event for like one group of players but not for the other segments. In 2020, you guys started to, you know, really look at addressing that and now you've got, you know, multiple events that kind of cater to each of those different segments of players that you have, which is fantastic. If I'm listening to this though, um, I'm hearing kind of in the the bottom of my stomach like Wow, that seems like a ton of complexity to add in. And then now you're also talking about being able to do reactive ops. Like how, like what sort of tools or systems or processes do you guys use to uh, manage the complexity of multiple events and be able to do those sort of, you know, reactive live ops as you need to, uh, such that you don't introduce a bunch of live ops errors because those can be super, super costly. Yeah. Uh, live ops errors. Oh dear. You know, I think there should be a podcast <laughs> dedicated just to live ops errors. <laughs> you know, things can go, I'm sorry, you know, but this is, this is, you know, uh, like my, my colleague once said, like, if you're in live ops, chances are that you were very close to causing a revolution in some uh, country with your mistake already. Like, you know, one minor thing, one minor typo can completely, completely mess up the event. You know, like, has it ever happened to you? Like um, when instead of entering some value, you've entered zero and suddenly something was free, which shouldn't have been, or (laughs) the timer was messed up. And like, you know, like a refresh time, which should have been 30 minutes was set to three years, you know? (laughs) I think the worst was like a a $99 uh, thing was copied into a, a 99 cent thing for 15 minutes, but of course, like the whale players found it and bought like... Yeah, yeah, they turned the game into like a tapper, like buy as many oh. as possible, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this happens. Um, right, but yeah, talking about, you know, processes and um, uh, and um, tools is absolutely fundamental in lab operations. Like I say, uh, errors will happen. That's the the reality of live operations. So obviously you want your processes to to reflect on this. One of the key things that uh, we try to do in in our live operations team is, I mean, there's many, and of course you will, you know, you will do, uh, you know, your QA check. We check everything, you know, like from the balancing. We try to, we always replicate the event with like a, now we just introduced this feature into our tool set called the time machine. So in the past, we had to manually tweak the times of events while the QA team was testing it. And then we, once we introduced it to production, we would have to revert the times to to the real time, right? Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that this is like a very fertile ground for human error to sneak in, you know? (laughs) 
So yeah. yeah, but also it's in the human, you know, what what we try to do is call the second pair of eyes check. Like let's say I'm doing an event and preparing the whole thing, but I've been, let's say I've been working on it for three days. So I consider something obvious, but at that point I would ask my colleague like, Hey, do you want to just review this with me, you know, just with your pair of eyes and to just to check that everything is okay? Because like I say, to me, it may be obvious and I'm not seeing the obvious error there, but he will probably see it. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. Um, you want to, you want to make sure that, uh, well, your tool sets should, you know, be flexible and you know that this is a never ending story, Tom, right? I mean, there's very rarely the perfect tool set for live operations, right? Sometimes it's, <laughs> It can be as crude as you know breaking the game code, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it is like that, right? I mean, sometimes you know you're trying to make an event and you're basically, you know, just breaking the the code in the game. Sometimes uh, you ha you have your tools, uh, but ultimately uh, you you want to make sure that your processes and tools are as flexible as possible. And I think everybody will agree that server side is absolutely a must. You know, you want to be as flexible mm -hmm. as possible on this. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was on a, a podcast with uh, Antania, Antonina Livingston, um, where she was talking about just the importance of having live ops tools that allow you to basically do everything on the server, kind of as you allude to, and change that. Um, but I, I do have a question about that. You know, obviously having everything configurable in the server is really useful, but at some level that probably had to be connected to the client code. So like if I have a Valentine's day event, that's like a holiday, you know, event holder. Yeah. I can see how that, you know, all changes, but if I actually want to introduce some sort of new event or change something meaningful, that probably also requires some client development. So like, is there a good ratio between the two of like how much your product team should actually be adding in new features and kind of expanding what you can do with your live ops tools? Well, if we talk about ratio, I think the majority of it should be server side. But of course, like you said, it, there, there, there needs to be a link between the client and the server. And I think this comes to like, you know, long-term thinking and when you're, let's say you're developing a tool or an event or something, right, for the first time. So, you know, the client developers will be working with server-side developers. And I think this is really where, you know, the designer and maybe the product owner or whatnot should be involved. Why? Because, you know, maybe you make your spec and you, you know, make a description of what I want this tool or event or, or whatever it may be, how I want it to work. But very rarely, these guys, they know the practical pains, right? Like when you actually, when the designers have to start operating it, this is where the majority of like, let's say the, 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 the stuff that were missed will come to, like, come to light, right? And that's why I would suggest always uh, a designer to, or uh, the product guy to be involved. So he can, and I uh, like tell them in a very human language, like, this is what I intend to do with this. And immediately probably the, the 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 guy who is supposed to be operating it will probably be able to say like this is what this is my concerns like imagine i make this type of error or this stops working this is how i need to be able to react and from my experience this really works well um especially for kickoff meetings uh, so when uh, when developers have this kind of knowledge right so when you express your concerns to them and they understand that uh, that live operations and uh, when you're going live and operating stuff uh, can be very let's say slippery ground. And if something goes wrong, I need to have uh, I need to have the tool set to be able to be reactive. And once they know that, they'll probably be able to you know fine tune and develop uh, this tool or event uh, in that way, right? Mm. Because the last thing you know, this is probably the worst news that can ever happen. Like imagine something goes wrong. And you get in touch with your server team and say, hey, guys, uh, listen, there's something wrong. Can we revert this part of the script or can we revert this, you know, this configuration? They'll be like, no, it's impossible. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Uh. <laughs> another, I mean, has it happened to you? I mean, unfortunately, it has happened to me a couple of times. And then you're like, okay, so hmm, what can we do here, you know? <laughs> I don't know that I've ever experienced something quite that bad, but I've definitely gotten close and had to, to come up with some creative solutions. Um, this actually reminds me of, uh, there was a GDC talk that Ethan Levy, Levy did, um, 
on config driven design. And he actually made the case of, you know, a lot of times in game design and feature design, uh, you almost like put together like a mock-up of what you want the screen to look like. And then from there, then you figure out like what is the data and then like ultimately like what that would look like in the tool to be able to run that. Um, he, he actually made the case for rather than dealing with the design first, actually start with the configuration. So like, what is the JSON data model gonna be? And like, what are those things that I want to be able to change and, and be able to do with? And then you can take those items and design the UI from that. So like, if you want the title to be able to configurable, well now you, you know, add the title over here. You want some assets to be able to, and you, you know, you basically build the UI off of that model and then you build the server side controls off of that model too. But it's all, it kind of starts with like, what controls do I need to have? What buttons do I need to have and triggers and things so that I can actually like run this, but it's the, the game designer that's really putting that forth and the developer kind of codes it out. Um, it almost sounds like that's kind of a similar approach to like what you're recommending here. Um, well, yes and no. Uh, this is like I think what you're what you're saying is definitely uh, has definitely happened to me. But this is I would say let's like a negative experience that starts to taint your vision. Okay, um, let me give you an example. Like you know, if you're working with a tool and uh, with, 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 with one tool which always has some, you know, imperfections or stuff that it's lacking. Your design mind starts to think um, within its framework, right? And it can kind of taint your vision. And one of the great experience, you know, in the past, this was such a great experience, like we hired uh, a new designer and this guy came with like the best idea ever. And I thought that was brilliant because and that was the, his idea was brilliant because he wasn't tainted yet with the limitations of the tools, right? And that's why I think what you're describing is probably going to happen naturally, or that is definitely what happened to me. But I don't think it's a good thing because you want to, you know, when you're when you have your designer hat on, you want to, you know, maintain your vision and the creativity, right? And you don't want to be thinking of restriction restrictions at the start. Right. So I would actually, I would actually not necessarily recommend that until you get to the, you know, practical phase when you need to start, you know, the actual implementation of the tool, or let's say, you know, coming with the uh, edge case scenarios, because ultimately you will really narrow down your creative thinking and your design will not, will be losing its, uh, a lot of its potential, right? You need to maintain a, you need to be a visionary, right? Whether you're a designer or a product guy, you need to be a visionary and you don't want to get tainted too much. You know, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to be like Frodo with the one ring. Like it starts to, you know, uh, take its toll on you and with time and eventually you'll be just like this by the numbers kind of guy. Like, okay, I will have this idea, but this is my restriction. So this is going to, I'm going to fit it in. <laughs> I really like that. I think that's great. And yeah, I think as few of restrictions as you can put on when you're in that design phase, I think the the better you'll be. I mean, you can always have a product guy say, oh, that's going to take too much time to do. And then you can come up with a creative workaround. But I think if you don't start with the ideal of how do we get there and you work within these constrictions, how much are you losing out that you could have, you know, gained in there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about the, this idea of reactive operations, because I, I think it's honestly the first time that I've heard about it in live ops. Like, um, and really it's around the concept of how do you deal with the potential risks of something going wrong in your live ops, or, uh, for some reason, you know, you, you ran some, uh, numbers that were like, okay, well, if my, my most engaged players play, you know, 10 times what they normally do, I expect this amount of inflation. And then you get the event live and they play like a hundred times. Um, <laughs> and, and how do you uh, appropriately deal with that? Um, so in your presentation, you had this really cool graph where it was like, you know, you launch the event and it jumps up with the inflation as we predict, and then you kick in your event sinks and it comes back down 
but it's not down to normal levels. Um, and that's where you kind of said, well, that's where we kind of kick in our emergency reactive operations to add additional sinks to get it back down. Um, and I was just curious, like, do you have any sort of examples of what that might look like or how people could approach something like that? Because I, I know that game balancing is very tricky and most games are balanced over months and years. Right. And then you've got live ops and you're trying to balance like a day or a couple days of stuff compared to, you know, this month or year game. And it's very easy to, to mess things up. So I loved the idea of reactive operations, but curious, like what could or should that look like? Yeah. Well, you know, on one hand you have a certain amount of data, right? Let me give you an example. Imagine you have one type of event and you know, in general, because you've been running it for so long that it creates a certain inflation and it's always been true to a certain degree. Okay. But now imagine that you take six of these events, you know, and you cram it in in one month. What's it going to be the reaction? You don't know because there is going to be a variable that you've never, you know, a variable that you've never experienced. And that's what is, you know, is this going to be a linear effect? Like, is this going to just pile up? I would say, I don't know, because I'll probably expect players to, to burn out because they probably never play, play, played, uh, you know, this kind of volume of, opera of operations before, or they didn't engage in this type of volume. So, you know, they may actually get frustrated and maybe we are wasting our time here. Like maybe they'll play the first two events and then the other four, I said six, right? We're operating six yep, or ten. Yep. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, maybe they won't even participate, right? So this really, you want to, uh, you know, you want to sit down with your team and do like a forecast, but not necessarily by the numbers. Like maybe you just want to, you know, do like a brainstorm. Like what do we think can happen, you know? And then you may want to start to, you know, get it, you know, look at all the data that's uh, that's. Uh, that, that you have available to you, but you're still in the gray because you're, this is what I, what we talked about before. Like there is a little bit of a degree of anxiety because you're in the gray and let's say you're operating something that has been done before. And what I mentioned at the, at the BGC talk is like, like, I don't want to sound negative, but like prepare for the worst and assume the worst might happen because that's always the reality. Right. Mm. And this is where the reactivity kicks in because you're still in the planning phase so, you know, you don't have to react like now, right? You're just planning and you can come up with, you know, various scenarios and that's when, uh, that's when you can start preparing for these scenarios. So let's say that I would assume that if you, you know, operate a high volume of operations that you've never done before, I would say, and I would assume that, okay, I don't think it will create a linear inflation, but that's my assumption, you know? And we all know the mantra, like, okay, you know, that's an assumption that has been valid, you know, validated, like, you know, that's my opinion. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to push it. And, you know, experience has shown, like, you want to prepare for the, the, the unknown. And so I would say, okay, well, let's pre let's prepare the, uh, you know, for additional emergency sinks, like I, what I talked about at the PGC, but there may be other scenarios that may occur, you know, imagine, um, that already after the two first two events, some players max out their inventory, you know, and they have no motivation to participate. Mm -hmm. You know, um, are you ready to unlock an additional level, or do we have anything additional that we can quickly put into these events so we can still motivate them to participate? You know, so there is a lot of scenarios that can occur, and I think the key here is to understand that. You can have a very strong assumption, but you just don't know until you until you execute it. And I think this is a cliche, but you you really just want to be ready for uh, as many scenarios as possible, and that that is what is gonna ultimately allow you to be reactive, right? Like you're gonna be ready for you know scenario A or scenario B occurring. Obviously, we want the best case scenario when nothing goes wrong or nothing unexpected happens. But I think that's not the reality of live operations, right? If you want to do cool, bold stuff, then things will, you know, unexpected things will happen. And they won't always be pleasant. <laughs> yeah. So, so as an example, let's say I'm 
making a live op event in cats and in the event i know that players are going to get a bunch of uh, coins and so i plan like a sync event on coins to get some unique uh special boxes that give me like a cool cutter or something that i can add to my cars um I, I assume that based on the balancing of the event that the stuff that they get, they should be able to spend right now. Um, but then I say, well, the worst case is players are going to get X amount and they spend nothing on this. So then I would queue up like a second offer. That's like almost an irresistible sink or something. And I just kind of have that like queued up in my tool, but not actually live unless the first one kind of fails. And then I can just like enable it kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, that would be definitely one way to do it. I mean, obviously, maybe you can think even more long-term. For example, I'm just going to make something up, okay? But imagine yeah. this, like, imagine we indeed cause an inflation and we know that we need to get rid of it. And imagine that we uh, estimate this, right? We estimate, we assume that there will be an inflation and let's use coins or whatever kind of currency, right? Sure. And you could definitely do this. Uh, that's definitely the example I use, but you could also link this with your live operations planning. And I don't know, you could, uh, I'm just making something up, but you could say, okay, so I assume that they'll have an uh, excess amount of coins. Maybe I can do like an event where you, you know, to enter, you use the coins. And this would be the ex exactly the minor type of operations that I sp spoke about, right? Nice to, you know, nice to participate in, but not mandatory. And suddenly you may have these players who have a lot of coins that they haven't spent after the event in, in their after the first event where they got them. And let's say four days after you trigger the second event where that they can enter by paying some of these coins. So actually you turned a problem, which was the inflation, into actually a live operation solution, right? And they'll be able to spend these coins and participate in an event. So you're, you know, it's something nice for them. They don't feel like they're getting ripped off. So yeah, there's, I think, a lot of solutions and a possible, de definitely, this was something very vague and broad that we spoke about. It's going to be, you know, we, you know, every game is different, mm -hmm. but ultimately it goes back to what we spoke about. Like you want to plan ahead and just brainstorm with your team. You know, you want to forecast a little bit and just be as ready as possible. Right. Um, yeah. One of the, let's say like values, although I don't think that's the proper term, but we say in our operations team, like live operators have to be kind of like the Navy SEAL sometimes, like you're 50% designer, 25% analyst, and 25% product owner, and you have to adapt, you know, whether you have to jump out of a helicopter into the freezing water or you have, you know, you have to dive, like just be ready to adapt. Like don't think this is set in stone and, and, and you have to go with whatever, whatever, is, you know, whatever has been um, working for the last uh, six months, let's say. Like, be ready to adapt. You know, the market is constantly changing. The player base is changing. You know, their motivations are changing. So you, you as a designer or operator or whatnot should reflect on that. Mm. I like that a lot. Um, so I, I know we're getting a little time here. So I have uh, one more question and then our... Uh, unofficial question. So, um, uh, a few months ago I was reading an article that I found super enlightening and it's, it was titled homescapes is a masterclass in live ops. And, uh, it, they did a breakdown of the live ops and homescapes. And I, I loved how they do their calendar and homescapes where like on any given day, there's like three or four different events that are running simultaneously. Um, but if you look at the events during the week, um, which is when I assume the players aren't as engaged for their audience, um, the events are, are very low engagement. Like you can come in and maybe like you play a level or two and like you get the event reward and it's great. And then on the weekends, the events are like much more intensive where like now if you lose a level, it's like really meaningful and you've got to start all over again. And they're much more likely to be like monetization type events, you know, because players don't want to lose their progress or, or either that they can just spend a lot more time, you know, doing it all over again. But it's like this blend and ebb and flow of uh, low engagement and high engagement that like leads to a system where like your high engagement players always have something to do, but low engagement players, your casuals also feel like, oh, I can play a little bit and I'm getting like good rewards. And, you know, like, do you have any recommendations around balancing something like that and creating a flow and 
is it key to design your events such that you're actually looking at regular play time? So like if your sessions are low or short on a Monday, you have like a correlating event on Monday that like encourages people to still log in and, you know, play one cat's battle, but then they're going to get like a nice reward for doing that. Um, and then on Saturday, yeah, you got to log in and maybe you'll have to play like 50 battles, but uh, you're getting some really cool rewards and stuff. Definitely, uh, this is definitely something to uh, take into account. Um, I, like I say, I personally, and within our team, we use the term major events and minor events. And a major event would be something like if, like that you would actually feel you're missing out on if you don't participate, right? And there is a huge, you know, psychological factor there because nobody likes to miss out on anything in a game that they really like. This is very, very taxing. And I'm like, players are completely able to churn because they missed out on this one event where they could get something that all of their friends got, all of their clan. And, you know, they can have this emotional reaction where they just churn like, okay. I... On the other hand, uh, we would have the minor events, which are kind of nice to participate in, but not, not mandatory. Um, with regards to the, I mean, this is, again, this might be very specific to, you know, different projects. Uh, I don't think we necessarily, I myself don't, we don't necessarily design around like how much time we want them to spend in. We let the players decide that for themselves. I think it's definitely worked in, uh, in, in the other uh, games I worked in in the past that this was something to take into account. Uh, but in general, it will be mm, more in, the, in, in terms of like, kind of like you mentioned, like do they have enough free time, right? Um, is this a good day for them to launch an event, you know? And for example, the, uh, you know, the Chinese New Year was a great example of it, right? Because the Chinese New Year is not just like one day, it's actually a, a season, right? And during the first part of the Chinese New Year, you know, China is huge, right? So a lot of people are traveling by train to visit their families, you know? So they, at that point, you know that a lot of them probably have a lot of free time where they can, you know, that they can spend playing the love, the, 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 the game they love. Right. So indeed at this point you could design a game that, uh, that where are an event that where to engage, they need to spend more time. Right. But to the contrary, imagine, you know, that you're preparing an event for, let's say a Thursday morning. Like, right. A lot of people are commuting. Maybe they have 20, 30 minutes in the better case. <laughs> Again, um, this is something to take into account. That's simply the real reality of the market. And, uh, you don't want to launch an event where you need to be, you know, grinding away for three hours to get, you know, some kind of a reward. Otherwise you're just gonna, you know, piss a lot of players off and you know, your, your, your risk, uh, well, the worst case scenario would be them churning, right? Or, or boycotting, right? Clans do that now. They, 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 you know, get together and boycott your game. So definitely, definitely this is something to take into account. You know, speaking of the commute thing, and this is just a random question, but have you noticed any differences in trends or player times or how I've had to make design changes in your live ops uh, due to more people working from home with COVID going on? Uh, yeah, we actually noticed uh, definitely uh, uh, a higher engagement. I think it was uh, the strongest during the summertime. I think, if I remember correctly, I don't. I don't have this handy, but yeah, we definitely noticed some trends. And I mean, it's not only in Zepto Lab. I think if you read any like uh, summary of 2020 from Sensor Tower or any you know App Any or whatnot. The, the, the trends were so obvious, right? And I mean, I mean, you don't, you know, there, there's no huge science behind this. Like a lot of people, unfortunately, well, depends how you look at it, but a lot of people had more idle time. So, you know, they would spend more time with, with mobile games, you know? So yeah. I think this was, this was a really good opportunity, you know, going back to the topic of reactive ops to be reactive, right? Mm. Um, That's great. You know? Cool. Yeah, please. Oh, oh, well, I was just going to say, um, if, if you have anything else uh, to add to there, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Not really. I mean, uh, funny enough, I was just reading. Have you heard about this um, application that I think it's called Cubi or something like that? It was like a, kind of like Netflix with bite-sized videos. 
Oh, is that the one that like crashed and burned really hard? Yeah, yeah. I was just reading about this, you know, talking about COVID and idle time. Like they had the, I mean, there's like a case study for like product owners about Cuba. And like the question was, what would you have done differently? But ultimately, like they had like the worst timing, right? To release because their idea was to have these bite-sized videos for mm -hmm. when people are commuting. And they released right when the COVID hit. Right. <laughs> that was like the worst timing ever. And it just, I, you know, I, I just remembered this case when we were talking about the COVID and being reactive, like, yeah, they should, they probably should have been very reactive or, you know, take, take it down because this is like the worst, worst possible, you know, scenario for them. Oh man. Yeah. That's so true. Cool. Well, Adam, this has been super, super enlightening. I feel like I've learned a, a ton. I'm, I'm sure other folks have too. Um, one one last official question, or unofficial as I call it. Um, if you had one tip for helping people boost their retention rates, um, what would that be? Wow, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, if we had the if we had the answer, we would all be doing it, right? Um, ultimately, you know. You wanna, you need to understand your players. I think this is such a cliche. I, I almost feel ashamed of saying it, but it, you know, this is just more true than not. And please don't just look at your data. You know, like try to, uh, you know, listen to community. And if you can't engage with your community team, you know, and like I said, your quali qualitative and quantitative data should support each other. And it's like with any other product. Um, you know, once uh, the players have installed your game and have spent a couple of days there, you're probably kind of, you know, you're probably kind of filling a need that they have right now, right? And you should ask yourself, well, what can I do to keep fulfilling this need for 30, 60, 90 days, right? Um, fun, we, when we talk about games, we talk about fun, but, you know, fun is not science per se. I mean, you can definitely do, do it in a sciencey way, but I prefer, I mean, well, you need to, but another layer of it is a very human approach and just understand like, guys, what can we do to make sure that you'll be coming the next day and the next day and the next day. And sometimes it's, you know, more simpler than we think, you know, we tend to go into data and various AB tests and, you know, maybe all we would need to do is, you know, take a look at the tickets and we might see a pattern, you know, that, that has been forming there. Maybe the balancing is super punishing, right? Or maybe the timing is very bad. You know, maybe your key audience is in a Brazil and you were, you know, planning your time around Germany. So the answer might be there. So my one tip that I would, would give is try to understand uh, your players as much as possible and adapt, right? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. You know, it, it's funny. I, I hear similar things from people that are involved with running live ops of games that have been live for years. It seems like the longer a game has actually been successfully run, um, the more you get people saying the importance of knowing your audience is like more crucial than anything else. Because when you know them, you know what sort of things they like and you can actually do those things and that keeps your game alive. And I think a lot of those other games that have kind of died in this, you know, the stream of things probably didn't really know their audiences. And uh, it's just very interesting to, to see that trend. Yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, this is, I think, a pressure that every live ops, you know, designer or manager always feels because we always have this pressure that we need to, you know, innovate, right? Because in a very basic sense, um, live ops should kind of be something cool that your players love, you know, they, they love getting a push notification about if they haven't disabled them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also our way of saying like, guys, we're still alive and kicking, you know, and there's these cool things happening in our game. But as you know, probably, um, you know, what's cool one day may, you know, lose its appeal after, you know, a couple of weeks. So we always have this pressure of how can we keep this sense of novelty and something cool always happening. And yeah, that can, you know, that's always a pressure we have. And uh, I think what you mentioned, Tom, is absolutely 100% true. Like, we're like, knowing your audience and knowing, because, you know, time, 
to develop is limited. And if you don't hit the mark, uh, you know, maybe you've wasted a month of development. So in the beginning where, you know, when you're get, collecting your golden cohort of players, you know, you may afford to do, you know, some research, you know, and you may afford to experiment. But the more your game is live, you know, the more your core audience is crucial and crucial to sustaining it. So you need to mm-hmm. really understand how to feel their, you know, their, let's say, need with your game, with your product. So I think you absolutely nailed it. I love it. Cool. Well, Adam, this has been amazing. Uh, if people do want to reach out with any questions or things, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the best way would be to reach out on LinkedIn. Um, I'm always interacting with your posts because I really find, you know, a lot of the stuff that you share very interesting and spot on. So they might see me in your comment section. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Adam Zelaney uh, on LinkedIn. uh, I'll be happy to, you know, engage. Cool. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and I hope we can do it again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Dom.